It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's here to say happy Wednesday to you. How are you doing so far? Halfway through the week, that's the good news. And uh, I don't know, is it is it summer almost here? feels like spring is upon us, and uh, we just kind of skip right over wintertime. Amazing. In the 70s today. Well... Time to go out there and start praying for rain once again. Jarrell will even let you uh, strap on that tutu of yours and do your rain dance if need be. <laughs> Any event, uh, we got uh, good weather to go along with a good show today. What a very special treat we have coming up a little bit later on in this first hour. Melba Beals is going to join us. You will recall her from her many years as a reporter on KQED's Newsroom. She was also an NBC reporter here in the Bay Area for many years and is one of the Little Rock Nine. And as we mark African American History Month, what an amazing story that she has to tell. Uh, Of course, uh, you may be familiar with her best-selling book, Warriors Don't Cry. She has a new one that really highlights her faith experience called I Will Not Fear, my story of a lifetime of building faith under fire. And Melba Beals will join us a little bit later on in tonight's program. Right now, we lead off the show. Brian Johnston joins us with an update on the battle over Senate Bill 481. And, uh, The old Hippocratic oath that doctors shall do no harm apparently has been just kind of tossed by the wayside, at least in states like California. And uh, once again, an ongoing push to try and bring about a a mandate that not only coddles the notion of physician-assisted suicide, but also, quite frankly, really provides no serious set of protections and to talk about the fox guarding the hen house. Wow. Let's get deal t- details now as we're joined by Brian Johnston, who is not only the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, but former California Commissioner on Aging. Brian, it's always great to have you with us. Uh, am I right in saying that there are aspects of this that really feels like the fox is guarding the hen house in terms of having no real true provisions for protection built in for the elderly? It's frightening, Craig. Let me be specific. The bill that I really want to talk about right now, 481, is, is we've talked about it many times, that is sitting still in the Assembly because we've done a yeoman's job, really, listeners to KFAX have. There's a bill, though, that is pushing its way through, very similar but different, and that is Assembly Bill 282. Now, the reason this is important You already know that California has legalized assisted suicide. It's legal. But what's still illegal is pushing people into it. And what this bill does, it's very clever. And as you know, the deceit of destruction is so nice. And so what the bill says, this isn't really a major change. It really says that in the language, the introductory language. Assisted suicide is already legal. We just want to clarify that promoting it should not be illegal. And so it changes the law even further. I'm nicknaming it the push mama from the train bill (laughs) because literally it allows anybody, not just family members, but as you know, with legacy hunting and heirs who are very anxious to get their inheritance quickly, you literally can cajole you can manipulate, you can sell suicide to a vulnerable person 
without any repercussions once this bill passes. Right now, if there's evidence of that, you're going to be investigated. But this bill is to allow the practice of assisted suicide to be promoted. Literally what it would do, it would allow people to advertise on the radio. It would allow people in nursing homes to go through nursing homes saying, you people really need to be gone. And you know, you can be. It's legal now to kill yourself. Here's the medicine. It would allow the marketing of assisted suicide. That's Assembly Bill 282. And again, we live in California, and California is more than one-tenth of the nation. But I know that all the listeners know that what happens in California then sweeps through culturally the rest of our nation. So we're in an incredible battle. And this battle is the battle for the right to life. It really is the same battle as the lives of those little babies in abortion. Well, you know what? Let me and ask you a question, Brian. Yeah. What happened to the notion of protecting the most vulnerable in society? I mean, when you consider right. both ends of the spectrum, both in terms of, of young people and uh, the aged or elderly, they are indeed the most vulnerable for reasons that are, I think, hopefully obvious to all of us. And instead of making sure that the law is strengthened to protect the vulnerable, it seems as if we're taking away more of those protections so that everybody in the comfortable middle can can decide if Ma is kind of in the way and getting expensive and we don't really have the money for all of this and after all just kind of warehousing her. Now what you're suggesting is that if AB 282 were to pass, um, a, a family member or somebody that had mm-hmm. uh, the ability to gain financially or just for convenience sake could, could begin to sweet talk or manipulate and in other cases where that would be right now an outward example of an older abuse, if this passes, that would be perfectly legal, you're telling me? That's exactly right. Wow. And it's startling. And unless people wake up to this, again, we've talked about it many times, but you hit the nail on the head, Craig. The purpose of the law is to protect those that can't protect them. That's why policemen have badges and guns. We live in societies so that the vulnerable can be protected. What happened to Roe v. Wade wasn't just that little babies were subject to being killed. They are. And we are concerned about that. And we're emotionally concerned about babies. I like babies. But it's not because it's cute babies that are being killed. That's not why abortion's wrong. It's because a human being is being thrown out. And at the end of life, you're not as cute as you were when you were a baby. And so the emotions, there's even stronger emotions to kind of throw grandma from the train. And that was a terrible movie. I think it starred Danny DeVito and somebody else. I don't think I saw the whole thing. But you know the theme. The theme is let's dispose of of mama because she's just a pain. And this is quickly becoming a reality. Now, there's one other bill, Craig, I do want to talk about because it's racing through, and that's the RU-46 bill. If we had a chance, I'd really love folks to know about what that means because that's coming quickly to our college campus. Give us a quick uh, thumbnail sketch, Brian. Sure. Senate Bill 320 is now in the Senate, excuse me, it's out of the Senate. It's now going to the Assembly floor. Every single Assembly member on the state will have to make a decision on this. That means you. You, as a listener, have an Assembly member that represents you. This bill would distribute to state colleges and state universities the very powerful and dangerous RU486 pill, abortion pill. It's not a morning-after pill. Please understand, this is only taken when the woman knows she's pregnant, and from 
she has to be at least six to eight weeks pregnant before she can even take it. So we know about the child as well and develop that. What it does, it's an artificial steroid that attacks the woman's body first, and it makes her stop giving nutrition to the child. Then the child literally withers within the womb and is expelled at a time not of the woman's choosing. It's incredibly grotesque. And when you hear the stories of, of women that have gone through this, it's repulsive because now they're the abortionist. This isn't some stranger that you're knocked out and looking up at the ceiling and then the baby's gone, abracadabra. No, this is an incredibly invasive steroid. The state of California would be distributing. Oh, did we lose him there, Brian? Uh All right. Well, let let me just finish what he was about to say then. Uh, The state of California would be distributing RU486 on college campuses if Senate Bill 320 makes its way to the governor's desk. So two of them that we need to be on top of praying about and contacting members of our um, (coughs) legislature here in the Bay Area. Assembly Bill 282, the no vote on that one. And Senate Bill 320, which would again provide RU486 portafacients to college students on college campuses. And then AB 282, of course, uh, that whole issue of dealing with the decriminalization of uh, essentially marketing or promoting suicide. So those are two important bills that uh, you need to contact your member of the California State Legislature on and urge he or she to vote no. AB 282 and Senate Bill 320. Our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, for being with us and giving us that update. Right now we're at 515. Let's get a look at traffic. We'll swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center and the latest with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Just 20 minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. If you can recall back to early days of high school, yeah, I, I, for some people it was a memorable time, a memorable experience. Others of us, I think we just wanted to get in and out of it. But there are probably few of us that can recall when our first year in high school at the age of 15 or 16 was so incredibly impactful, so significant, that it made the cover of Time magazine. And yet that is exactly the experience of our next guest tonight, a name that, quite frankly, is not going to be a surprise to uh, longtime Bay Area citizens, residents who are fans of uh, KQED television and the old newsroom. Remember that show? One of the groundbreaking news magazines of television back in the 1960s. And, of course, uh, you may also recall our uh, guest tonight from her time as reporter for NBC. She is the author of a couple of books, best-selling more than a million copies, Warriors Don't Cry, and her latest, simply entitled, I Will Fear Not Fear, My Story of a Lifetime of Building Faith Under Fire. And Melba Beals, what a delight it is to have you on the program. It's my blessing, my pleasure. Thank you. And Melba, I just mentioned uh, fond memories of your time on uh, Newsroom with, um, let's see, Belva Davis and Mel Wax. I forget who all was. Well, these people were my mentors in the sense that they taught me the reality. I had gone through Columbia University's School of Journalism, one of 32 people chosen throughout the nation to diversify the media. 
And, and ours was the first show I worked on. And you, uh, you, 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 you cut your teeth in the industry, so to speak. My grandfather was a cameraman at KQED Television at that time. Oh my goodness! So you you probably name? would have uh, would have bumped into him during uh, your tenure okay. there. It was the first uh, TV uh, cameraman hired by the station clear back in uh, in 1956, about the time that you were having another experience, and that was your first year in high school. And as I mentioned, for most of us, that that's that's kind of a a time that's that's memorable, but for entirely different reasons than your experience. And this will put it in context for listeners. Your experience is part of the Little Rock. Tell us Correct. a bit about yeah. that. Uh, this, of course, all on the heels of a decision that was made by the Supreme Court in Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, that said that the so-called notion of separate but equal was uh, not equal at all. And the beginning of integration uh, came to public schools across America. Not much of an issue for more forward-thinking parts of the union like California, but it was a major issue in Arkansas. Correct, because Arkansas was a part of a Southern tradition where African-Americans were always meant to be uh, oppressed and kept separate, very separate. And there was no effort to make it equal, just keep them out of the way, keep them separate. And that had been true since my childbirth. I wrote another book called March Forward Girl, in which I chronicle my life from 1 to 14 under the Jim Crow rules, where it was step aside if a white person walked by, don't look them in the eye, By the time I was three years of age, I knew that I was in a place of unwelcome because my parents would be so proud and parental and very, very, you know, charming at home. But then the moment we would step into somebody's grocery store, a white man's grocery store around the corner, they would become somebody else. They would kowtow. They would be bowing and yes, sir, no, ma'am. We would be standing in line to pay for our groceries. We'd have been standing there maybe for 10 minutes. If a white man walked up and wanted to pay for his, he just stood right in front of us and went in line. And, and this so experience... That got really tiring to me because even at three and four, I wanted to get back home to my toys. And so you're delaying my playtime. And so I noticed it right away. And, and your experience with, with, with uh, racism in, in general and, and Southern racism in specific literally goes back to your very birth. I was my riveted by... Your story inside of I Will Not Fear about what happened. And, and, and I think to put all of this in context in terms of your faith walk, take us back to what happened. Uh, your grandmother, a, a central figure in your life for many reasons, and, and in a lot of ways, very much your hero. Correct. And, you know, from the beginning, people say, why did you survive? How did you survive? Well, a God, religion. And it is my belief that was absolutely instilled by her. By the time I was three, I was, you know, absolutely reciting the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer. And at my house, you went to church two or three nights a week plus Sunday, and often Saturday for soup and prayer. And so there there was just church. Church was the baseline of every bit of uh, socializing we did as a family. And so that was all I knew. And Grandmother would always say that God is as close to you as your skin. You need but to reach out and ask, and he will be there for you. Your grandmother, in fact, intervened in a fashion that I guess one could say arguably saved both your life 
and your mother's. Tell us about right. what happened in December the 7th of 1941, completely unrelated to Pearl Harbor, uh, but a pivotal date in your life. Your, your mother had been expecting, and I understand toward the end it became a bit of a difficult pregnancy, and your grandmother literally had to stand up and fight for both her daughter, your mom, and you. Tell us about that. Well, you know, in Little Rock, uh, black folks were not admitted to hospitals very readily. And my father worked for Pacific, uh, Southern Pacific Railroad. And so based on that, my mother and grandmother, they wanted to get my mother into the hospital, I think owned and run by that, that, that railroad. My mother was very petite, very, very, very tiny. But at birth, I weighed nine pounds. So imagine at the end of that birth, her belly stuck out too far. And my grandmother determined that, that she was going to have trouble. She was already having trouble a couple of days before I was born. And so my, my grandmother determined that it would not be good for her to give birth at home, as all the other women had done in the past. So at, at 5 o'clock one morning, uh, just the day before I was born, she went looking for, she had to walk through the snow and cold of weather because the buses didn't quite run, and she went down to that hospital to say, you know, could her daughter please be allowed to get in? And she had gotten with the black bishop in our community, and she had brought with her some influence to help get me in. And ultimately she was told that they would not give her a room, but they would give her a storeroom, a storage room that they would get cleaned out. And so they did that, and my mother was placed in the hospital, and as my mother was giving birth, um, they did something which is totally illegal now, which is they used forceps on my head. Still, I bear the injury of that today. And as they're pulling me out, they injure my head. And as this is happening, the physician tells the accompanying nurse, you must wash this child's head with Epsom salt quite frequently, every couple of hours, right? Uh, because I was scarred and it was bleeding at the time and it would become infected. And so the nurse did make a comment there. Interestingly enough, she never told my parents or my grandmother that that was necessary. But at the moment I was born, if you want to talk about God, there was a black man cleaning up the room in which I, uh, had, my mother had given birth. And he was, he was sweeping the floors and whatnot, and he heard this instruction from the uh, physician to the nurse. And within a, he went off. This was Sunday morning, Pearl Harbor Day. Well, Monday he was off. So he came back Tuesday, and by the time he came back, as he walked down the hall, in my bedroom people were humming and praying because my temperature was so high, mm. over 100, and the minister was there to pray me out because the determination was that I was going to die. And my grandmother was just, you know, moaning and crying, and... This, this man stepped in the room, and he was concerned, and he said, you know, what is the problem? And so my grandmother told him, and he said, well, I guess that their Epsom salts didn't do the job it was supposed to do. And my grandmother said, what Epsom salts? And he said, the nurse was supposed to do this. My grandmother got her person rushed out the door to go get it. She meets the nurse in the hall and says that, and the nurse says, give you niggers an inch, you take a mile. I'm not going mommy coddle niggers. But my grandmother got the Epsom salts, and that was that. It was that man's presence, a timing is everything, that saved my life. So my my very life began with traumatic drama, 
succeeded in the fact of segregation and oppression. And the amazing thing, I want to put this in, in into current day reference, because some people eavesdropping on our conversation right now, Melba, feel like this is centuries ago that this happened. And yet we're talking about not that long ago. We're talking about a, a, a time in American history that continues to cast a very long, dark shadow over America. And even if you look at some of the political discourse today, even for those of us that live in states like California, uh, we see evidence of it everywhere. And, and, And the irony is, for as far as we have come, there are still examples of this level of uh, what do we call it? Just Ill- illogical, deep-rooted hatred that yeah, makes absolutely you know, no sense whatsoever. You signals, if your skin is black, my love, if your skin is black, they're more than just signals. For example, we recently went to Little Rock to celebrate the 60th anniversary, and we were, we were advised by the NAACP uh, before going that people of color should not travel that way. And so the things in our home were not uh, as safe as they could have been. We were guarded every moment we were there. And, you know, uh, there, were, there were reports while we were there of black people going shopping in the mall, parking their car, and coming out, and somebody written nigger all over it. Mm. So there's evidence in California, there's evidence all over, that everything is from the top down. And our current leadership, uh, by comments and tweets and foods and whatnot, has indicated a willingness to accept, tolerate, and perpetuate racism. And it is scary the depths to which this can go, and we're going to pick up that end of the story when we come back after a brief time out, because as I mentioned in my opening remarks, a few of us have our opening days at high school uh, memorialized, so to speak, on the front cover of Time magazine, and yet that was exactly the experience that Melba and eight other of her classmates had, appearing on the first page of the front page uh, of Time magazine in October of 1957. And to think that the governor of Arkansas actually called out the National Guard to prevent a bunch of children from going to school... We'll talk about that as we return. Journalist, best-selling author, Melba Beals, a look at I Will Not Fear, my story of a lifetime of building faith under fire. Back with more of our conversation with Melba Beals as this edition of Lifeline continues. 5.31 on the clock. Let's uh, pick up what's going on traffic-wise here over at the KFAX Traffic Center. We've got Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Celebrated broadcast journalist, best-selling author, Melba Beals with us tonight. You know, of course, her best-selling million-seller, Warriors Don't Cry. She has a new book out that really details her faith experience through the trials and tribulations that have been her life called I Will Not Fear, My Story of a Lifetime of Building Faith Under Fire. Melba, take us back, if you would. Um, we are in Little Rock, Arkansas. The year is 19. 19- 57, and um, you are selected along with eight other classmates to be the first students to enter into the uh, integration of Central High School. How did that come about? How did you get chosen? Well, you know, as a result of the ruling of the Supreme Court, a Little Rock began to know for certain that they had to comply. Now, these were people who were viciously against that compliance. Uh, so viciously that it showed you every way they could. 
you know, the buses were segregated, the water fountains were segregated. Everything in my life was segregated and frightening. And the Klan rode fairly freely in, in, in that area. And so for me, life in Little Rock was unbelievable. I remember at age four, I asked Mom, I said, where did I come from? She said, the storks. So I got my sun hat, and I, I went out, and I put my wagon on the sidewalk, and I sat out there all day, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I am waiting for the stork to come back this way, because when he comes to deliver somebody, I'm going to flag my way out of here. Mm. I wanted to go. And so um, they shifted through the students of the high schools. In the meantime, they had teams of people going out and telling African-American families, you don't want to do this because if you do it, you're going to pay a penalty. Every job we had in that city, the food we got at Christmas, all the extras we got, all depended on them, and they knew it. But for those who were left over, they shifted through the school, and if you had good academia, you did not talk back. You had good behavior record uh, and all that. It all came to play in that you were selected to go to Central High School. You also had to live in the district. And so the decision was made, and on that fateful day, it, it got difficult. I mean, there, there, was, <laughs> there was the calling out of the National Guard by the governor to prevent you from going to school. Right. The very assignment of that task alone was, was you know, generated fireworks. Because then the mobs who came in front of the school and the mobs who were set up to keep us separate were given the energy of the governor. They knew that he was approving. And so by the time my mother and I arrived at school, the uh, crowd on the sidewalk across the street from the school, now imagine we're talking about a building that is eight square blocks in diameter, two blocks long in the front, and we approached the rear of this crowd in the front, expecting to meet the other uh, eight people to enter the front of the school. Our goal was to enter the front of the school. However, we missed them. People got separated. Other people got separated, too. Elizabeth Eckford, very petite young young girl, had got, gotten separated. And at the time, we, we came up behind this crowd, and everybody was looking across the street. They were on tippy-toe with their hands over their eyes. And we did the same thing, because what are they all looking at? And then we see what they're looking at is Elizabeth Eckford. And she's, she's walking, and while she's walking, there's this group screaming behind her ear and spitting on her. And uh, a hideous scene. And we thought at first, well, let's just dip across the street and help her. Why is no one helping her? Why aren't the soldiers helping her? Because each time she would turn as though she were going toward the front steps, they would close ranks. And so... It became a horrifying decision on my mom and I part. We looked and we said, okay, let's try to get across the street. But then one of the men near us, wearing coveralls and carrying a rope, said, hey, we don't have to go across the street. We got us a nigger to hang right here. And it was at this point that we realized, wait, we are in way more trouble than we knew. And, and so Bilba, you are a 15, you are a 15-year-old girl when this is happening. Correct. 15. So my mother said, run. And we started running as fast as we could. And uh, meanwhile, this group of men turns, and they're running directly behind us. And they're screaming what they're going to do to us before they hang us. And as we're running, my mother has to step out of her heels. She was a teacher ready to go to work. So she was carrying her release, wearing her little, little linen suit in her heels. And they got close enough to rip the jacket off of her back. And we're running, and my mother says, here, you take the keys. 
and you get in the car and you go, whether I'm there or not. And I said, no, ma'am. And she put the keys in my hand as we were running. And for the first time in her life, she slapped me. She said, you hear me? Mm. I said, get in the car and run. And I, I said, I wasn't going to do that. But I, at this point, I thought, we're in, we're in so much trouble. Nobody's going to rescue us like nobody's rescuing Elizabeth right now. And so I remember what grandmother said, you know, until you're 14 or 15, the, the, the words in church are just that, they're words. And I'd never had a, an occasion to test God before. So grandma said, you know, call on God. He's right next to you as, as close as your skin. So I started to scream, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. 23rd Psalm, I scream the Lord's Prayer. And as I'm doing this, we come upon this place in this unpaved sidewalk where there's like a bush lying across. And uh, my mother and I go around either end of it, but the people behind us are so intent on catching us that they don't see. So the first man goes down, and then the group falls, tumbles, just like domino effect, allowing me those few sections, or seconds rather, to get to the car. And my mother had been teaching me how to drive on the parking lot of Kroger's department store, or grocery store, and I jumped in the car and backed up faster than I had ever driven forward. In the meantime, these guys are banging on our windshield and calling us names and threatening to hang us, you know. And I got home, and on the way home, I thought to myself, you know what? Integration is a bigger word than I thought. Mm. That's a big old word. I'm going to look it up in the dictionary. After that first day, Melba, uh, and again, I understand that you were essentially selected based on your academic background, and uh, they thought you perhaps would be uh, uh, not altogether problematic in terms of, of well, right. integration. Well, right, church-going goodies. Right. And, and, and so this is not something that you sought out, but yet with day number one ending the way it did for you, was it hard when yeah. mom said we're going to go back and try it again? And the president, of course, by that point had, had brought in the 101st Airborne of the no, United States Army to accompany point. you? He did not yet do that. We went back a second day. And on that second time that we went back, first we got a court order. It took about a week to get a court order to have the, uh, the governor remove the troops. And then we went back. That court order came on a Friday. We went back on a Monday. And... Um, he did just what he knew he shouldn't have done. He removed all those troops, thus exposing us to the anger of the crowd without any protection. And the police that were holding the crowd back with sawhorses were throwing down their badges. And so as we entered the side of the school, I could look to my right and see a bit of that. But we were led down the hallway and into the office where we were greeted by smiling Jess Matthews who was the principal, and we called him Smiling Jess, because no matter what we told him or said, he smiled. And so um, I said, well, why can't we go to some of these classes together? And he said, no, you wanted integration. You got it. And so they dispatched us nine different ways. So here we were. We were nine black children among a group of almost 1,900 white students in a building that was seven stories high with a band fit on top of that. 
And, of course, the atmosphere so so incredibly racially charged. And, you know, the children, what can they do but mimic the behavior of their parents? They see the way the administration is act. They see the way the governor is acting. They see the mob out front. Right. So uh, there, there's parents. no controls here. What There's no adult. <laughs> Effectively speaking, there's no adult in the room to say, hey, wait a minute. This is ridiculous. This is horrifying. No. And, see, that's what was scary to me because for the first time I was watching – Adults, white adults, behave like I was unaccustomed to adults behaving. I was just too widespread. Yes, I had witnessed the Klan hanging a black man in the rafters of my church, but that was one incident when I was five. I didn't think that the whole community of hundreds of people would have behaved that way. It's been like a mob, you know. And so it was incredible. And the Klan well, actually put up... We were pulled into the office. I was, I, you know, I, I figured out by 1130 that it took... I could, I could say the Lord's Prayer, you know, 12 and a half, between 12 and a half and 13 and a half times going up to the third floor to my home room. Because that's all I could do was say the prayer. Because I was being yelled at, spit at, people were throwing things at me, you know, I didn't know what to do. And so by noon, we were called to the office and I'm nosy girl. That's why I, they said I made such a good news report. I'm a very nosy girl. And so I stood with my ear to the door to see what the adults were discussing. And one of the assistant chief of police said, hey, we're going to have to let them hang one child to get the other eight out. Wow. But a gentleman said, no, 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 no. I'm a father. We're going to get them out. we got to get them out. I, I, you know, how shall we choose the one they'll hang? Let them draw straws. And so, sure enough, they carried. So, this, I mean, this is, let me put this in context for listeners, Melba. So, this is the equivalent of saying we have a hungry, angry mob out front that wants blood. So, in order to satisfy them and essentially spare a few lives, we're going to toss one to the wolves. And while they're devouring that body, that'll give the opportunity for the other eight to escape. I mean, my heavens, what kind of thinking? Exactly. And so, but this man did stand up. Uh, praise God, and said, no, we're going to get them all out. And so, indeed, he took us in a circle down these stairs. Now, remember, this is an enormous building. When you see it, it's surprising to most people. But but don't forget, it ranked 10th in the nation in educational facilities in this country. It was a huge, beautiful, beautifully equipped, beautifully outfitted building, two blocks long. So its basements, as you can imagine, its lower floors were huge. And we went down these stairs, down, down, down. And I always have this imagination since I'm a writer. I think, well, they're taking us down here to hang us. But no, they had cars, police cars, parked in the basement with shotguns mounted on the dash. And they put us in, and they said, put your head down and don't look out. And they don't do anything. We can't stop, because if we stop, the mob is going to take us over. So the moment that big garage door opened, I could hear the chains, huge garage door open these cars were up out of the ground out of the basement but i remember seeing just hands and screaming and hands across the front hands across the windshield it was an incredible experience because i thought they're going to get us they're going to eat us they're going to get this car but that policeman bless his heart kept driving no matter what he didn't stop i don't know whether he knocked some people down or what but he drove with reasonable speed he really did thus risking his life.
Because if he'd had a stop and they caught him, he'd have been dead. But he drove us home. And I got out of the car, and my grandma, I said, thank you, sir, for the ride. My grandma said, no, thank you for my life. And you will pray for this man the rest of your life. When you got home that day, I mean, was there a discussion with your mother about, okay, enough, this is just, this is crazy, this is just too risky? Yeah, big discussion. It was brought, uh, inviting in my father. My parents were divorced by then. And many members of our family, neighbors gathered. Everybody said, you know, this you can't do this. You're risking us and yourself. And, and let me mention for listeners, the KKK had placed posters all around town indicating you and your other eight classmates were wanted $10,000 reward for dead, 5000 bring them in alive. Oh, it was very clear that they were willing to kill us. That, that, that was the first thing as a 15-year-old that you don't understand that. What do you mean by that? What is death anyway? I don't know what death is, really. I've seen grandparents buried, but what is death? Do you go and come back later? A 15-year-old doesn't really get that that's a forever thing. And so for me, it was very frightening because for the first time, whether forever or not, I knew it was tacky to crawl in that coffin. And that's something I didn't want to do. It was dark and you were alone. And I didn't want to do that. I actually thought, what does this mean to me? Within you know, several days, you... And how will they do it? And so it really started me for the first time in my life to think about my own demise. Within several days, Melba, the, the, I don't know if it was all nine of you, but at least a, a portion of the group had an opportunity to be at a meeting with Dr. King. Well, and, not until a little bit later. Well, I should say that first, Eisenhower, as a result of this city being in disarray, he sent down the 101st Airborne Division. Right. So it was and subsequent we then to the Army school. getting involved. Say what? It was subsequent to the Army getting involved then. It was after that. Yeah. It was later in September that Dr. King came down to check on us. And we met in this rumpus room, this basement of the uh, Little Rock NAACP leader, Mrs. Daisy Bates. And um, he, when he entered the room, just the, his presence was an incredible recognition that he, this man is different than you are. He had a center and an air, you know, aura about him that was indeed something that I had never seen before. It was so quiet and soothing and confident, and it was just so incredibly heavenly. And he talked very, very slow. And uh, he talked, kind of looked each of us in the eye, and we began to talk. Now, I began to complain. A, by this time I had acid in my eyes. B, I was tired. I wanted out. This was just too difficult. I couldn't sleep at night, and I was sick of it. I wanted to go, let's talk about the prom at my own high school, and I want some friends. And I'm tired of being called all these names. You wanted to be a teenager. You wanted to live a normal teenage girl's life as opposed to, and, and you, you, you went by that quickly, but I, I want to highlight that for listeners. You had acid thrown in your face. You were in, my eyes, in your eyes. You were forced into the girl's room, locked into a stall, and they took burning papers and, and dropped them on top of you from above in an effort to try and burn you, set you right. on fire. You know, these kinds of things I detailed in my first book about this incident called Warriors Don't Cry. That's the one that sold more than a million seven books. Um, and in there, I, I talk about things that happen daily. And before that was over, the editors took out something like 30% to more of the things that happened to us because they said, readers just will not be able to handle this. This, this is it's too unsettling. 
And so but I, I go through many of the things that they, they did for us. Probably the meanest is painting my seat with peanut butter and putting little flakes of glass in that. You know, if your if your publisher was concerned that the the staunch, gory details of your experiences at Central High would be too disturbing to the readers. I, I imagine what it was like as a, as a 15-year-old. I mean, to me, then the, the only thing that got you through that was the example set of people like your grandmother and your faith. Oh, and every day I would talk to her. She's my pal. I go stand with her to, to, to water flowers. And I'd done that since a child, you know, was born. I with grandma when she waters her at four o'clock and um she would talk to me about god and how don't you feel him don't you feel his nearness and all you have to worry about is what he thinks of you he loves you melba he has your picture on his refrigerator he knows how beautiful you are no matter what anybody tells you you deserve equality you are now equal you don't have to wait till these people tell you you are Right now, there are things we have to do to preserve our lives. But you are equal. You were born equal. You will always be equal. It must have been very painful for you when she succumbed to leukemia. It was the end of my world as I knew it. Yeah. And it happened the following year when the governor had closed the schools. And um, I didn't know what to do without her. And finally, it occurred to me I had to behave like her. I had to pick up the banner and become her. I had to mock her behavior. I had to show my trust in God. I had to do what she said, do March forward, girl. Every time I'd come home from Central High School, that's why I've named the book that I wrote uh, for younger people to explain, you know, life under Jim Crow, March forward, girl. Because every single time I came home telling her what had happened, she said, look, if they knew better, they'd do better. We are all children of God. March forward, girl. And so I, I got it. That that's what her boys would tell me to do, was march forward, and that's what I had to do. And I did it. So she not only mentored you, but also in a, in a tremendous sense was, was modeling... Uh, well, you made the reference. She would say that God is as close to you as your skin. She, she really, she really became that connection, so to speak. Then, with your relationship with God, uh, yes. that sense of mentoring that she provided, that that really taught you as a young girl going through horrific experiences that no thinking person would ever want their own child to go through, let alone any child. And yet Absolutely. she was there to be able to kind of show you the way, so to speak, so that by the time she was out of the picture, uh, you not only could look at her as a role model to continue on, but by that time had helped to, what, solidify your own personal relationship with God? I had. And, and her leaving then cuts out the middleman, you see. Yes. She taught me enough that, okay, you've you got to move on now, kiddo. You cannot... First of all, my mother was devastated. Uh, my little brother was very upset. The whole family was torn by her death. And I was the one who had to step up because my mom was working every day. And so I became her. I, I followed all her instructions. I did every day what she did. I got up. I read the Bible. I prayed. I looked out at the sunset. I went for a walk in the backyard. I talked to God. How grateful I am that I got up this morning. 
You are the ten things I'm grateful for, dear Lord Jesus. And I come to the house and I make breakfast. I did what she did. That was the only thing I knew to do, was to follow her pattern. And it worked. Eventually it worked. Did I suffer? Was it said to be without her? She'd been my best friend all my life. Of course it did. To this day, I am glad that I never went to her funeral. My family was so upset with me because when the hearse came to pick us all up, I refused to go. Because I never wanted to see my grandmother dead. And to this day, because of that, she lives in my head. Only I see her alive to this day, you see. And that's where I can write about her so clearly. I didn't know at the time. At the time, I was just so anguished, I couldn't go. But now I, I understand there was a, there was a, again God's reasoning behind it. So it's all, it all works out. Melba, I, we've we've kept you long here, and I know that you're a little, little bit underneath the weather. Uh, let me ask you this: as we we wind down our visit together, and I wish I had three hours with you. Maybe we can get you to come back again one of these days. What's Absolutely. the big What's the big takeaway here? You you have delineated in your your previous book. We mentioned Million Seller Warriors Don't Cry. Your experiences as part of the Little Rock Nine, and the terrible things that you were subjected to right. as a, a, a young girl uh, there in the Jim Crow South. In, in, in Arkansas in the 1950s. This new book kind of picks up in some ways where that book left off. Well, but it's, really, it's a new book, I Will Not Fear, is meant to be a summary of my entire life. And, you know, the first one about 0 to 14 is March Forward Girl. But this book, I Will Not Fear, is to tell you everything that ever happened in my life and to say, look, folks, are you waiting for a choir of angels to scream out that you're being blessed? Do you need to know that that you are shown God's presence in the smallest of ways. Please pay attention to that and know that God is with you as close as your skin. And it is the smaller things that happen to you that you think, oh, well, that must be a coincidence. Like when I write about how my son was saved from a huge dog in the park simply because there was a man lying on the beach in the sand, a bum, who rose up and took his hand and walked away with him. The owner was standing there saying, lady, don't move, tell the boy not to move. Uh, his life was was safe, you know. So many things happen to me in the last moment. They happen all the time, and I have to notice them and be aware of them to share them. That'd be your first takeaway. Your second one is I have no animosity. Grandma said bitterness is like chewing on a lemon. You get the sour. Half the people that you chew on don't even know that you're not happy. Mm. And the other thing is I was taken in, adopted, loved, cared for by a white family. When we were forced to leave Arkansas because of those papers that you talk about where they're offering money for us to be dead, I was taken in by Dr. and Mrs. George McCabe, who live in Santa Rosa, California, my mom and dad, and us, a brother and three sisters, who to this day, the following, the opening generations, you know, the subsequent generations of that family, as well as my sister, have two sisters left alive, are still my family. That was my mother and my father. So understand something. There were so many people who, who were white who kept us alive. I would not be alive except for those little rock white people who very quietly gave people jobs, fed people, gave them money during this, or who stepped up to the plate. Are the Quakers, white Quakers who came down from the north to train us how to behave, how to not hit back. And so I need to say that, so you don't get the idea here that that people are not all alike. We are really all alike. 
we have gradations of good and bad within all of the races. Well, and, and certainly while there are times in, in your life that you delineate inside the pages, I will not fear, that are very painful. It's painful to read. It's painful to think that these attitudes exist now, yet alone existed Absolutely. then. And yet, I think for me, the big takeaway was that throughout all of these experiences, some that are horrific to recount, I'm sure for you, even all these years later, that at every turn, at every moment, God showed up. And it hurts. Just because you love the Lord and you get tight with Jesus does not mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you. What it means is that inconvenient and bad things happen, but you will have the strength to sustain yourself. And with each of these things that appears to you be a detriment, you will have the blessing of understanding God deeper and getting closer to Him. Yeah, I, I heard it put you know, this. I, I heard it put this way one time so that uh, God, God, uh, God doesn't show up to pull you around bad experiences, but rather to bring you through them. To bring you through them, so that you are stronger on the other side. And whatever it is, as Grandma said, if you fall over the side of the mountain and you see there's nothing you can do about it, enjoy the scenery, because <laughs> you're never going to be hurt. God is with you, no matter what. And so experiences that you have in your life that are negative. And so I, I'm 76, and so what I Will Not Fear does is summarize. You know, the first two books are parts of a trilogy, the third part, which I'm writing now. But in some ways, I Will Not Fear is a summary of my entire 76 years telling you, hey, folks, I got some proof here for you. God is real, baby. And if you don't have some God somewhere that's real, you're missing out. You're bad. Because in the end, I win. And I win every single day I continue to breathe. Because God is here. God is real. And therefore, I know for certain that I'm in good hands. Melba, thank you so much for taking time to not only share some of your story with us tonight, but to also share it inside the pages, I Will Not Fear. Uh, it's, it's compelling reading. I would urge listeners, not just because it happens to be Black History Month, but the lessons that can be learned here of, of faith, of reliance upon God, of understanding that God shows up even in the really tough times of life. There's much that we can pull from this book that I think all of us will be tremendously encouraged by. Melba, thanks again for your time. I hope you feel better and hope to get a chance to talk to you again real soon. It will be my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Take care now. There is Melba Beals. The book again, I Will Not Fear, My Story of a Lifetime of Building Faith Under Fire. Newly published, by the way, by Ravel Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as the usual suspects, Amazon.com. And uh, I think you can also order it through her website, MelbaPatillobeals.com. An amazing story, an amazing woman. 6.03 on the clock. We're a little late. Let's get caught up. The latest with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center.